Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Uh, in today's discussion, I am speaking with Kathy O'Rourke. Kathy is the General Counsel and Company Secretary of Record. Kathy takes us through her career arc right back to her education. You know, she studied history at Princeton and then law at Harvard. And a huge impact and influence in her life was then taking time to teach kids in Harlem. And so she talks about the importance of public service and the impact that experience had on her. You know, Kathy spent 10 years at Davis Polk and then moved to a GC role to work uh, certainly in-house at Smith & Nephew and more recently, a couple of years ago, joined Record in her current position. So it's a fantastic discussion. And we get Kathy's views on a range of topics, including uh, what it takes to be a great GC today, leadership, and her, her perspective too on the potential impact of AI. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the discussion. Kathy O'Rourke, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's fantastic to have you on board. I can't wait to share your story. So kick us off. Take us through the Kathy O'Rourke career arc. Thanks for the invitation. It's uh, it's great to be here. So the Kathy O'Rourke career arc. So uh, so I so I'm from the United States. So you know the 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 legal pathway in the United States is after four years of undergraduate university. Uh, then you, if you decide you want to go into law, then you do another three years postgraduate uh, law school. So. At the when I was in, in uh, undergraduate, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that I wanted to be a lawyer, and uh, I think I recognize that we have a lot of lawyers in the United States and a lot of very good lawyers in the United States, and I wanted to make sure that if it was something that I wanted to do, I wasn't just choosing it as uh, a default because I was a history major. So I was always very interested in public interest and. I went to Princeton University and uh, Ralph Nader went to Princeton and he was the class of 55 and he was a big uh, sort of public interest advocate in the U.S. A lot of people credit him with there being seatbelts in the cars in the U.S. In any event, at his 25th uh, reunion, he challenged his class uh, to do something uh, to uh, Princeton had a motto at that time, Princeton in the nation service, which is now Princeton in the world service. But at that time, he challenged his class to say, what are we doing to really fulfill that mission? So they created an organization called Princeton Project 55 that was in order to help find public interest jobs for Princeton graduates. You know, a lot of big companies would come to campus and recruit investment banks, you know, insurance companies, all of those, which is all great, but but it was hard, you know, it's always hard for public interest um, organizations to recruit. So they they started this organization and I did, uh, the summer between, between my third and fourth year, I worked at a place called Lawyers for Children downtown in New York, really uh, helping on the social work side of things, which I really enjoyed. And then when I was graduating, 
they helped me find a place at a school in Harlem um, where I was technically the assistant principal, but I, but what that really meant was I was in charge of whatever else wasn't getting done. Quite frankly, I was um, in charge of, of helping with the budget, managing the payroll, doing development work, teaching a gifted literature class, taking the kids on field trips, making tea and sometimes getting, you know, <laughs> dealing with sick children, pretty much everything. Um, but yeah, so it was, um, it was an amazing two years. And also it was on 138th Street, uh, just off uh, in, in central Harlem. And so I also, I, I lived in, in Midtown Manhattan, but for the majority of yeah. my day, it was the first time that yeah. I was, you know, a, a minority, um, which I understand I was in the privileged position that I was, you yeah. know, it was just for um, the work part of my day, but it was just an, an, you know, an incredible experience. And in some ways, probably the two most important years of my career, because I recognized during that time that what I, what I, really enjoyed was advocating and counseling uh, and learning how to sort of deal with cash flow and budgeting was sort of a side benefit as well. Uh, so I, uh, and I also worked for a really ins inspirational leader there. So during that time, I decided that, it, that I did want to go to law school. And so when I went back to law school, it was, uh, it was, with a new perspective, you know, I could really enjoy law school in a way that I think I hadn't um, expected that I would because I had a perspective on life that, you know, I, I stress was taking 80 kids on a, on a New York City subway to a field trip and being worried you're going to lose one of them. And during that time, I thought, and I think I still will uh, go back to public interest, but I thought, when I was uh, finishing my second year of law school, I was thinking about clerking for a federal judge, but I wasn't really, again, I was in a process that I felt wasn't going exactly the way I wanted. So I thought, what else could I do with the year right after I graduated? And I applied for a Rotary Fellowship was lucky enough to get one. So when I graduated from law school in the US, I was able to go down to Australia and do a year and oh, get an LLM cool. at the University of New South Wales. Uh, and and really, yeah, and uh, lived in Sydney for a year. So that was a great year for me because when I was in law school in the US, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't do enough really, um, yeah. frankly, yeah. Uh, with international topics and international law. So, so I spent in comparative law. So I spent more time focused on that when I was, yeah. when I was at uh, UNSW. So that was, that was a great year. And, and I foolishly thought at the time, because I knew I wanted to be a litigator that I was, it was my opportunity to live abroad um, as, as a U.S. litigator. But uh, yep. It turned out my yep. career turned out much more international than I expected. After that, I went back. I clerked uh, for, for a federal judge, which was you know amazing in terms of seeing the way the court system work and, and a particularly insp inspirational judge, Judge Martin. And then I went to Davis Polk 
And at Davis Polk, I had the opportunity to work on lots of different types of cases for all different types of clients and industries, you know, banking, pharmaceuticals, yeah. mining, um, um, all over the world. So I did some, and, and at a certain point in my career, I started to focus more on international investigations, did a big OFAC investigation involving a foreign bank. So I so started to do a lot more international travel at that time. Then I worked on a big matter for BHP Billiton. So I was back in Australia for, for wow. the last um, several years I was at Davis Polk. And, you know, at that point, what I started to realize I was traveling a lot and I was, you know, waking yep. up in my yep. own bedroom, having no idea where I was and all of those things. But, but most importantly, I, loved learning about my clients, learning about their business, helping them through some of their most difficult challenges. But what was difficult, what started to get difficult was just when I would help them turn a corner and start to think about the future and yeah. growing their business yeah. again, it was time for me to move on and, and find, yeah. So I realized I wanted to be part of the, the next phase of the journey for, for a company. And about that time, the then um, chief legal officer of Smith and Nephew came along and was looking for someone to be the um, associate general counsel for litigation and investigations. They had just signed a deferred prosecution agreement. They had a monitor and they needed some help with that. I had some experience in the area. So I ended up at Smith and Nephew and uh, I loved the idea of working for a company that had products that helped people. And so that was that was the beginning of my in-house journey. And I was at Smith & Nephew for nine years and I eventually ended up as chief legal and compliance officer, had legal and compliance and enterprise risk management, uh, worked for three different CEOs there, built an amazing team. And um, in late 2021, when I felt as though my team was yep. really, some of the people on my team were ready to step up, I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to move uh, to wreck it. And so, and, and, and experience a different type yep. of um, product portfolio and different type of business. So allows me to continue to learn every day and, and, and grow. So uh, ended up at wreck it. If you think about some of the kind of, pivotal points in your career. You've mentioned, of course, um, the experience that, that you had teaching kids in Harlem and the perspective, I, I assume too, the, the purpose and mission <laughs> that it kind of gave you when going to law school, which which is, mm -hmm. I think about how valuable that is because sometimes the, yes. it is default because it's just the default things that really smart kids do, but they have no idea what they're actually doing or yeah. why they're doing it. So that so that opportunity, I just think it would make you a completely different student. But beyond that, what do you look at and um, identify as kind of pivotal points and why? My time at St. Mark's in Harlem was extremely important as we, we as we talked about and taking the time to to decide that I wanted to go to law school. Because obviously we all work extremely hard. And, and you have to have some something that, that sustains you uh, over the course of your career. I think continuing to learn, 
um, is another thing, right? So, so, yeah. and pushing outside the comfort zone. So even going to work at a grade school in Harlem right after uni yeah. university, that was pushing myself a little, you know, outside my comfort zone. And then when I went uh, making a decision to, to go and live yeah. in Australia um, was, was, was also, you know, doing that and, you know, but also just an amazing experience. Um, I think then when, and I, I think what I realized at Davis Polk was as much as I loved the firm, I loved the people I worked with and I did love the, 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 the intellectual challenges I got to a point where I realized that that um, moving from client to client yeah. Yeah. was not what I wanted yeah. to do. You know, so I think it's those moments where you step back and think, I could be successful in a variety of different ways, but the way that I'm going to be most yeah. successful in terms of both my happiness and giving to you know the community around me is to find what's sort of the, the right fit. So taking a little bit of time in a very busy world and a very busy schedule to really try to figure out, is this really, even though I'm getting, you know, people want you to stay where you are, are you, is it really right for everybody? So I think that, um, and then when, when I got to Smith and Nephew, you know, at, at Davis Polk, I was in this privileged position of having, uh, you know, I, I became, I had, I developed expertise in litigation and investigations. And that's how I transitioned to Smith and Nephew. But once you're in house, in order to, to continue to progress, you have to just constantly press yourself outside your comfort zone. So very early uh, at Smith and Nephew, I was on a call with a team, you know, with the team in Malaysia asking me for competition advice and I remember thinking, why are you asking me? This? Is there a competition <laughs> lawyer on the call? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or is, there a, or is there a lawyer with experience in Malaysia on the call? Um, and there was neither, you know. And so I think you you start to realize when you come in house that, of course, you always have to rely on local expertise, subject yep. matter expertise, but but being comfortable with uncertainty. Yep becoming confident enough to say, I don't know, but I will find the answer for you. And just constantly pushing yourself outside your comfort zone and realizing that sometimes, you know, it's all about just good judgment. So I think going in-house helped me realize that. Um, and then also realize that just, you know, sort of, I think I realized that over the course of my career that I do best when I know that I'm continuing to learn. I've had a couple of conversations this week on this very point, and it was advice I gave senior people in their career, lawyers who were thinking about the next move. And um, it, it's funny, the thinking was shaped almost entirely by what they had just done or what they'd been doing for a number of years. Um, and uh, what neither of the individuals I had spoken to had done and what I had encouraged them to do, and let's say Jenny is the name of the first one to make the hypothetical. I said, Jenny, have you actually kind of, I just want you to step back and just have a think about 
what what do you like doing what do you not like doing and and what do you want your the next phase of your career what would you like it to look like what do you want to achieve and it, it's i mean it's really basic but it's funny the the thought had almost not um uh, crossed both of their minds because it was very much as i said it was shaped by precisely what I've done and therefore I have certain skills and therefore I will continue to find basically opportunities that align with those skills that I've developed. Kathy, it's something we don't do enough and especially as you get even more advanced because of course you've got you've got the usual family kind of commitments whether it's children in school whether it's and I'm not going to call it a treadmill everyone calls that but it's a well I've got to I've got to get through this phase and I've got to and I know what I need to do um I can continue, you know, using the skills that I've developed. But that reflection, because I did it when I turned 50, I had to ask myself, what did I want 50 to 60 to look like? And was I okay with it looking like 30 to 40 and 40 to 50? You know, just as a partner in a law firm and litigator, you know, high-value construction litigation, and I could continue do them, doing them really well, being paid really well. But when I was 60 or 70, would I be happy with that choice for that decade in my life? Um, and uh, sometimes it takes a little bit of courage because, because anything else is a bit of a risk. Uh, and, uh, you know, everyone's risk appetite is different. But I, So that's a, I think that is really important. And it does dovetail into your second point about, and you learned it quite early, about being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that is the growth zone. Uh, no, uh, my sense is sometimes that as you um, get older, some of us veer onto that path. Others get more comfortable with what they know and, and less comfortable outside of that zone. I think people can be persuaded um, and open to the opportunity for, if they're surrounded by and having the right conversations with the right people. Actually, I talk to my, to my team about that a lot because it's just, look, in a large corporate environment today, and, you know, frankly, I could say today, but for the past yep. you know, five to 10 years, there was always okay. something, right, that made made life uncertain. One of the real yeah. valuable things that that a general counsel brings to the to the company and to the executive team and to the board is a sense yeah. of calm when things seem to be in yeah. crisis. And I think part of that comes from that yeah. developing the skill of being more comfortable in the uncomfortable space. And really, you can, I think you're right. I think everybody yeah. has to learn it, right? Because some of us, you know, sometimes you get forced into it. Sometimes you make the choice. And uh, either way, once you've experienced it a couple of times and realized that you come out the other side, but some of us do, I think, have different yep. sort of tolerances for it. Yep. And I think that's yep. totally okay too, because of course I do, I do want to sometimes call somebody who's been doing the exact same type yep. of litigation, you know, for, yep. for their career, because they're going to be the ones who are going to help me through. But 
um, but but some of us, whether it was totally intentional or not, get exposed to that uncertainty and realize it's okay, and and that that's yeah, and that that's something that we can add. It's funny, Rankin, the former GC, and I think Seven Eleven. He, I loved his description. He said, "My job is to absorb chaos as a leader and disseminate order." Mm. I just, I love yeah. that. And you talk yes. about that because you looked as, yeah. as as the calming influence when things are, and I think that's yes. a great leadership yeah. quality: absorbing chaos and disseminating order. When you think now the role mm. of a general counsel, large corporation, what are the skills that you think are the most valuable and basically are required now and looking into the future? Yeah. So as I said, yeah. you know, as we just talked about, obviously, then, you know, number yeah. one is that sort of calm um, that you can bring. I think the other, so... The confidence, as I said, the other thing is the confidence to be to to say I don't know, uh, because you have to be able to do that because people are going to ask you all yep. kinds of questions, often questions yep. that nobody yep. really knows yep. until they pick up the phone and talk it through with some other smart yep. people. And I think um, I think constantly being willing to to learn um, and and grow. I think developing a, a strong team and giving them exposure, giving them credit, making it clear that there's a there's a there's a, a, a very valuable team of highly skilled professionals adding value and competitive advantage to the business that sits in you know legal and compliance. Um, because that I really do yeah. believe is critical to the success of a company and part of the job. And I think the other thing that I tell my team that I do think really helps in terms of the success of a large enterprise, I think legal and compliance can often be a connective yeah. tissue within the organization. I can cascade messages through my team much easier than yeah. a lot of my yeah. colleagues, right? Um, and also, my team supports every yeah, part yeah, of the enterprise. Yeah. The only other, you know, the other comparable function is is HR, which is also obviously an, a critically yeah. important partner. But I think um, always taking the enterprise yeah. view, uh, which you know, most of the people, uh, you know, everybody on the executive team should be doing that. But obviously, the heads of certain divisions have very yeah. specific focus. Whereas my focus has yeah. to be enterprise wide, and so I think that's something that the GC um, is uniquely positioned to do. And then, obviously, creating, trying to help create the relationship between the the executive team and the board, which is uh, a little more. Uh, uh, I don't know if I'd say challenging, but a little more. It's a little different in the UK PLC world versus the the US. Uh, because, you, you know, you have in the UK an independent chair. Uh, so yeah. there's just a little, the independence of the board yeah. is a little stronger. So making sure that that's a functional relationship. And then, you know, constantly thinking, trying to see around corners. I know it's such a cliche, but, it, you know, I think it comes back to 
that uncertainty and people always wanting you to be the one to provide an yeah. answer, but sometimes make it, helping people see yeah. sometimes there isn't an answer. It's about risk tolerance and what it, you know, what are the potential outcomes and how much risk are we yeah. willing to take? Um, and what types of risks? Some risks are completely, you know, unacceptable, right? In in yeah. in my world, um, yeah. product safety yeah. unacceptable. You know, anything that's going to harm yeah. a person. Um, but then, geopolitical risk yeah. is different, right? And you just have to, um, you know, you're you're constantly navigating that risk. But I think that I think. Risk management is getting more and more sophisticated. And by, but I think what I have been trying to do is make sure that I help the risk team really show the business that it is a way to yep. run the business, that it is a way that we that that again a function can add value. Um, you know, we have regulatory requirements around it too. And as a former litigator, I'm always worried about yeah, the disclosure totally. side of risk management. Yeah, yeah. But, but I'm, but I'm, but I have seen that if you, you know, even in a budget discussion, in a strategic plan discussion, and uh, an enterprise only has so many resources, right? So you got to sit there and think about where are we going to put our risk resources, what's yeah. not negotiable, and then yeah. what's left, and and yeah. how do we see yeah. the risk, right? So I think that's another. Another and it goes back to that inter being this sort of connective tissue in, in the enterprise, helping people see that at the end of the day we're one place and we just yeah. have to balance. It's funny you'd mentioned I hadn't um, uh, I know about but I hadn't thought about your specific experience. But um, you do know that um, for uh, English Australians, the role of a chairman in the US is just an enigma. We don't understand it from a corporate governance point <laughs> yeah. of view, we just well, don't get it. I still don't yes. get it. So, yeah. Um, well, it's yeah. really, I mean, you know, it's, it's very, it's most common that yeah. it's the chairman CEO is a, is a combined is a role, combined role yeah. right? So this, yeah. So this, this idea that there is someone else and it's funny cause I've worked with CEOs who come into an environment where they're not this yeah. the chairman and the first couple of board yeah. meetings are interesting, yeah. right? Because they're used yep. to running the meeting and all of a sudden it's like, oh, <laughs> that's right. not your meeting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, we could have a whole separate podcast yeah. on that alone, I think, Kathy. So yeah. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Um, fast forward to today. Um, last couple of months we've heard yep. a lot of hype um around the potential impact of language learning models like chat gpt and others on legal what are your early thoughts uh both in relation perhaps to um uh, your own legal department and the internal um work that you do and also perhaps in relation to the yeah. way it might impact um with your law firms and the, the relationships there what's the early thinking of kathy o'rourke there's upside and downside, right, for legal. The upside, which, and I've had people on my teams start playing you know, around, yeah, working yeah. with, yeah, for, for yeah. a while now, actually. My, when I was at Smith & Nephew, the team in China, they did promotional review because um, it was a very, it was a lean yeah. but mighty team there. And they had, yeah. they actually were early adopters of using, um, um, you know, yeah. rudimentary yeah. AI to help with with promotional reviews. So there's, I can see 
lots of areas where in the last 10 years, you know, my in-house legal teams have been drowning in sometimes yeah. soul-crushing yeah. work that I think we could move to start to use um, AI more effectively in those areas. And, and I do think we can, you know, start to help people to be more efficient in those more and, and to be able to focus yep. on more strategic areas. The, the reality is we are constantly under pressure, right, yeah. with our budgets in-house. And so will we be expected to do that? Absolutely. Will we be expected to be able to show the headcount benefit when we yeah. do? Absolutely. Uh, but so, so I do think that ultimately it yeah. will reduce the size of legal teams, but hopefully there will be um, other opportunities and that we'll, we'll find other ways. Interestingly, for instance, recently we've been talking about, you know, there, there's actually every company I think, right, is, is struggling to find um, good, you know, cybersecurity yep. yep. professionals or people who can help in those areas, various areas of IT. And apparently many companies have started internal training programs where they move people from other parts of, of the company um, and in train them and, and yeah. move them into sort of yeah. cybersecurity, other areas of digital, more on the technological side. Yeah. I could see people, you know, who are currently in legal interested in digital yeah. topics making yeah. that kind of a move and for the and that being a real win-win in terms of bringing yeah. a different type of thinking into into IT roles and also finding new opportunities for people. So, I think and I hope that ultimately this will help us, you know, elevate the profession in a way to but I do worry a little bit about um, the amount, you know, the way you learn to be a lawyer and, and will that suffer if we, yeah. um, start to use AI more and more on this sort of, uh, uh, yeah, I, um, I think we have to fundamentally rethink how we train or how we're going to train, yeah. um, lawyers yeah. if, yeah, you, you were going to say. And I, and I had a converse, yeah, I had a conversation with some law firm partners about this last week, and they were saying, well, it's probably, you know, what you, what you might be do, saying is what you're really doing is now, instead of two years of doing yeah, discovery, you know, the, 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 the <laughs> document the, review, the, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it'll yeah. be a much shorter yeah. period. So that then you can be, you, you sort of go through the training much more quickly. The qual you become the yeah. quality checker much, much more quickly. And and hopefully that is, you know, and I, I think that probably is the way that it will go. But I do think the profession will have to change. I mean, but look, there are so many things, um, right, where ultimately, as we all know, you know, I can, I can get multiple opinions from lawyers about the really complicated issues based on all of the research in the world. And at the end of the day, it comes down to a judgment call that you take, right? So that's always gonna be, that's always gonna have to be the case. All of that will get better and better through a language learning model, ChatGPT or otherwise, um, so that you're really gonna be 
directed to focusing on what do you what's valuable what 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 should i be paying for and it is going to be i think that yeah the more high level um real experience real expertise but it does raise a question mark as to well what happens and how do we train in relation to that other work that we used to pay for I've been talking to, you know, law firms about this for a while, even before this happened, right? Because I think that the in-house, I think that the role of the in-house lawyer has changed pretty dramatically in in the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years, right? I think I used, you know, there was a time when we probably thought of the in-house job as a nine to five lifestyle job. And it's not that anymore. I what I say to people when I'm recruiting them is it's not. I wouldn't call it lifestyle job. I would call it though that you yeah, have yeah. a life because you have a little more control. Yeah. Um, uh, but and I also think though as as more people just made the choice to go in house, but they did so at time by the time they understood the way law yeah. firms really worked. And so and once you have once you have a budget, yeah. you're managing. I think the the law firm model of yeah. leveraging that huge base of of associates. I mean, most most GCs and sophisticated in house lawyers for the last several yeah. years, even before, you know, thinking more about this, have been saying you really That's are going to have to change your model. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. So the, the the smart law firms have started. Right. Um, but I agree with you. I think those that have not really better, you know, this, this better propel them forward very quickly. So yeah, I think that the law firm model, the law firm building will have to change. I caught up with Rena Sengupta just for a coffee yesterday afternoon. Rena is one of the most influential um, writers, speakers, commentators, uh, facilitators in the space amongst law firms and GCs. And and the way she described it to me, um, having, I think, been off just almost like a dozen calls with law firm managing partners, is she has never seen a sense of um, kind of urgency and accelerant, um, a recognition mm-hmm. um, that something has to change. She coined the term, and I'm going to credit her with it, um, she coined the term a pricing revolution, <laughs> is going to take place because law firms will have to work out, okay, what is our model going to be now that um, that time is clearly um, uh, such a poor measure of me. So I, um, so I think she's right. I think she's absolutely right on that. Uh, I'd be interested in that. I have another hypothesis, which is this. I think that CEOs will be asking their GCs and perhaps GCs of their own legal departments, what is the legal department's AI strategy? I don't know if you've been asked that question, Cathy, or you expect to be asked that question, but is your view that every GC will have to have, to some degree at least, an AI strategy for the legal department? Yes, I'm sure. Um, I haven't haven't been asked that question yet, but I also, but, but what I think is, you know, because probably a, for a consumer goods company with, uh, with very strong brands, our initial focus, right, is making sure that we are equipping the, yep. the larger population of the company yep. with the right yep. guidance, right, or, and, and so that we end up protecting our brands. So that's, that's kind of the yep, initial of focus, I would say. But I think 
but yeah, absolutely. That will, that will be the next, um, that will be the next question. And I think that's going to depend a little bit though on the size of your team and, um, you know, that kind of thing, but, but absolutely. And I think that, you know, as for me, I am, I am, I think it's important to be proactive and to make sure you don't fall behind. But I also want to make sure that that yeah. we don't rush into things um, or, you know, and, and, and technology that is not tested, that yeah. won't be adopted. You know, one of the things that we've all learned, right, about technology in the legal space is if you don't get adoption right. early, forget it. You've just wasted yeah. time and money. So, so I think there's that. And I also think there's, a, you know, I, I'm, I'm also, and my team and I actually were just talking about this two days ago. I want to make sure that when we look for advice, we're actually getting advice from, from people who have expertise based on some, some real experience. Yeah. Knowledge. You know, I, I'm very interested in being part of yeah. working groups where everybody is kind of figuring things yeah. out together. But I think there are, you know, as is always the case when there's sort of a new area, um, you can see that some people are sort of Correct. very early claiming yeah. expertise that are not, <laughs> is maybe not really there and, and looking to bill you for projects that are actually probably more building their expertise yeah. than delivering value yeah. to the yeah. company. So that's, that's the other thing I think that GCs yeah. need to be a little bit careful, but, but I can tell that there already are um, some, you know, partners at law firms who have been working for the big tech companies for, for a very long time. And, you know, those are the places that I'm looking um, to find advice. It's funny about technology and adoption. You're absolutely right. The thing about technology, of course, is we always overestimate its impact in the short term and underestimate mm -hmm. its impact in the long term. Yeah, <laughs> that's like a, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's a it's a universal rule. Um, fantastic, yeah. um, Kathy. I'm going to round out with a couple of my uh, favorite questions. Um, advice that you would give to your 25 year old self. Advice that I would give to my 25 year old self. Um, just keep challenging yourself. Yeah. I think that's, um, and make sure you stay open to possibilities. It's funny when we're 25, sometimes we do take a narrow view on yeah. what our career and, and the impact that every decision we make at 25, we think is going to have for the rest of our lives. So we yeah. stress and fret and weigh up and, and so forth. Um, yeah. But if you've actually got the right mindset, um, yeah. then the, the, whether it's course correction or learning <coughs> along the way, the right mindset at that and being able to, the old don't worry so much. If you do get it wrong, yeah. you've got the right mindset. Yeah. Um, that's true. You, you'll get there. Yeah. F final question, yeah. Kathy. Any, anything that's keeping you up at night now? I think that I'm always thinking about um, trade and geopolitical tensions and 
supply chain um, issues. And so, so that, um, you know, particularly uh, the, the dynamics between China and the U and the U.S. Not necessarily because I think anything's going to happen anytime soon, but you know, I always worry: have we have we really applied lessons we've learned? Um, uh, so there's that, and I guess the other thing it doesn't keep me up at night, but I think that I I think that increasing um, focus on sustainability obviously is is critical, but it will. Uh, there'll be some, uh, you know, I think that that we're really, even though we've been talking about ESG for a while, I think we're just really at the at the beginning of the real shift um, in terms of of what it's going to mean going forward for companies um, and the world. I mean, which is good. Hopefully, hopefully we're not too you know too late to. But I think, I think that you know, making sure you're really ready for that, thinking about that, because um, it, it's all it's all pretty complicated, both in terms of of, of just getting the right balance uh, between all you know, between what's right for for the environment and and the world and the people that you're trying to serve, and so it's you know, those are the issues that I think are going to really continue to be important going forward. I don't know that they, they don't probably keep me up at night, but I think about them because even it even impacts like, you know, for instance, in consumer products, it's about you want to constantly be thinking about the environmental impact of your products. But then every time you change an ingredient and you can do as much, you know, safety testing as possible. But as we all know, ultimately, you know, it takes a long time before any of those, you know, any issues really come to light. So constantly thinking about that stuff, I guess. Uh, I did actually, as you were talking, I was thinking about one thing I should have asked you about. I'm going to ask you anyway, because it just seems to me, I, I, I was wondering whether in the last 18 months, you've, you know, you've changed countries, you're living in London right now. So by definition, you kind of, you hear different things, you get different perspectives, you, mm. your media intake can change and so forth. Is there anything mm -hmm. that's changed in you? Um, or if it hasn't changed, any kind of new perspective, perhaps, just by changing where you lived, um, the people you're dealing with, as I said, what, what you consume, I'd just be curious if um, the last 18 months has, um, uh, has changed you at all or, or any, any of your views. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know that I would say changed my views, or, yep. but I do think that the focus on sustainability is certainly stronger, stronger here. Outs yeah. yes in london in london than than um in the u.s and and i see that in the you know sort of our business too and what you know pro what what solutions will sell in different markets and really and this was something i learned a little bit you know i i learned back when i was living in australia too is as as much as we have this global economy and you know you can get news from all over the world the where you are does shape so much yeah. of what you hear. And it's really interesting, even in things like, you know, um, the news around around the war, the sort of the way it's reported yeah. in the U.S. versus the U.K., although, you know, general alignment. But 
when I talk to friends, slight differences in yep. in perspective. Yep. Um, it's it, so it's interesting. It, it's interesting just to be exposed to know yes. that the narrative can be a little bit different somewhere. Yeah. If it is a yeah. little bit different, and that's a narrative that is played, then then you can understand why opinions might differ, or there might be yes. different perspectives. And I think just yes. being exposed to that um, and and understanding and realizing that's that might be why there is a different view or that might influencing a different view. I, I, I think that's incredibly valuable. Uh, Absolutely. Kathy, we could talk all night, but we're not going to do we that <laughs> because it's Friday afternoon here. We've yes. got to wrap up yeah. uh, and, yeah. and wind down for the week. So, look, yeah. uh, fantastic speaking with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Love this episode. So thanks very much, Kathy. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.